Welcome back, everyone, to Real Time Review. I am your host, Doug Burbank, and with me, Kevin Anderson, as usual. Hi, everybody. And returning for his second appearance, so we can keep talking Game of Thrones, Dr. Tom Robeson. I prefer to think of myself as the cock merchant of this particular podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll send the on your way. Fresh cockles. Fresh cockles. All right. Well, you know, we uh, we got this this uh, ragtag group together to do a little preview before uh, episode one for this season of Game of Thrones. And we figured, hey, we're done. Everyone's had about a week or so to let this all sink in. And we figured we would do sort of a recap. And so we're going to talk a little bit about our predictions, some of which were surprisingly good and many of which were pretty far off. Um, and then we will revisit the deaths, so we'll get someone to play the violin while Tom Tom gives us the rundown of of who did not make it to to the end of season ten or to the end of episode ten, and then and then we'll just kind of talk about our feelings on the season as a whole. But um, anyone want to jump in before we uh, we get get going? Uh, we are recording this on the night of July 4th, so if you hear a lot of explosions in the background, uh, my neighbors are having a lot of fun with illegal fireworks, uh, and they're putting on some displays that would rival a lot of small towns. Frankly, I'm not quite sure how they haven't blown themselves up yet. Uh, I hope they are not holding any stores of wildfire anywhere near them, because uh, if they were, uh, this is not going to end well for me. Here so at uh, real time if I die tonight in a blaze of drunken Midwestern methy ass glory, <laughs> I am glad to go out talking Game of Thrones with the two of you bastards. There's no better way to go. And here at Real Time Reviews, we like to give you a sense of uneasiness while you listen to our podcast. <laughs> so make sure to uh, embrace the anxiety that we're all feeling right now. I uh, always do. Well, since we are uh, possibly predicting. Uh, Tom's death right now. Let's talk about our predictions for deaths we made uh, a couple months ago. So right, I'm gonna I'm gonna start this off because my prediction just just couldn't have been more accurate. So I'm gonna <laughs> gloat for a second. I called that the Tyrells would not see the end of the season, and was I boy was I wrong going into the last episode? But <laughs> it, one fell swoop, and uh, we pretty much. Covered everyone except the Queen of Thorns, which I did think the Queen of Thorns would be included, but we lost them all. Uh, what do you guys think about that? That was no my... one will ever kill the Queen of Thorns. <laughs> oh, she will live forever. That yeah. was my big surprise going back and looking over our predictions. I'm like, man, Kevin fucking nailed that one. Like, you didn't. Yeah, you did have uh, Olena in there, but God, like, just from from root to stem, House Tyrell is gone. Mm-hmm. Do we so that speaks to obviously they had something good going for them and and Game of Thrones loveth to take us away. Uh, so I mean, thinking with that theory in mind, I mean, I guess Cersei is our obvious answer right now. But do we have any people in obvious happiness or power that will be cut down right now? Um. So with Cersei, uh, she was a big big uh, topic. For the last episode we did this, and Tom had predicted that she, he thought Cersei was going to die because she will have basically lived out her, her full usefulness. Yeah, I was pretty wrong there. Yeah, but I mean, I think, and I mean, I I disagreed with you, and I said she would make it through, but but my caveat was she was going to bite it for season seven instead because I just think that she needs to to finish up her arc, and I think 
we are now seeing her uh, in the the last stages of it. I think she ends the season in a spot where where she's definitely um, uh, on the downslope. Yeah, we might not say she's happy right now, but or maybe she is. Maybe this is all she's ever wanted, and and she's finally here. I don't. I don't know that any of. I, I can't imagine that either of you guys are, are viewers of a of a TV show I'm quite fond of called Unreal on Lifetime. But the women in Unreal have a tattoo on their wrists that just says "Money, Dick, Power." <laughs> I feel like Cersei somewhere on her body has a tattoo that reads "Money, Dick, Power." Uh, arms of her feet, because we would have seen it last season. Yeah. <laughs> oh. God, that's good. Uh, so, yeah, in that sense, too, then I, I was also right because I said Jamie will bite at the same time Cersei, so he's a no, too, um, for this year. Who else did we, who else did we say? We all thought Littlefinger would make it through the, the season, and um, we're totally right on that. Sleep. Even though he was barely in the season. Yeah, true. It's He's got some big moments, but, yeah, he's certainly not much of a presence outside of really two scenes. They sure are setting him up for a presence, though. He was throwing a lot of uh, ominous shade over to Sansa's direction for the, the last few bits there, especially that King of the North moment. Got to imagine he's got at least something up his sleeve or just willing to create chaos wherever possible. Yeah, I, I have to imagine that that's going to be one of the, the bigger conflicts for for next year i think will be sort of sansa v little finger mm-hmm. well why does it have to be sansa v little finger why can't it why can't it be sansa and little finger v john i mean i don't think that's as likely but it would certainly in many ways be more in keeping with the tone of the show that it just wants to deny you happiness. And, and I think on on some levels this season has been an anomaly in that it gave us beautiful happiness as, as viewers. I mean, I'm sure anyone listening to this, you know, all, all let's be generous, all, all 14 of them. (laughs) Um, I I have no idea how many people are listening to this. Uh, (laughs) But I suspect a decent chunk of them since the last episode are, are now my students. Uh, <laughs> how many of us were sitting on our couches or standing and cheering and going, yes, 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 you can't see me. I'm sticking my hands up in the air as you do this. Uh, because we finally got these moments of pure narrative happiness that we've been denied for five years. Uh do you really think this this show is going to give that to us again anytime soon, or are we just going to get bitch slapped for another couple of years? I got I, I got kind of two thoughts uh, on sort of that as a whole in the Sansa thing. I know a lot of people during that whole Sansa little finger moment during during uh, the end of episode ten were like, oh, Sansa all of a sudden has this look on her face like she's she's up to stuff. Like is she is she pissed about the turn of events in the North? I don't think that's it. I I always took it as as she was like, ah, god damn it, Littlefinger's still around, and he's clearly not going to let things just be. But in terms of the happiness, Tom, I actually go back to something you mentioned in the the last uh, episode for this, where you said George R. R. Martin is not actually telling an unconventional story, and so if that's the case, I would say that we have firmly entered. Uh, 
probably act four or five at this point of our of our structure. And if that's the case, for our protagonist, things should start to to at least be looking, if not happy, at least kind of on the up for them. I mean, it's I almost think of it, you know, you used you said act four, which is what sent me in this direction. And I'm almost thinking of it as the way like a Shakespeare play mm-hmm. is structured. Very often in a Shakespeare play, the end of act three is when a lot of stuff happens. It's when Mercutio is killed. It's when Tybalt is killed. Spoiler uh, alert for all of you who haven't yeah. read Shakespeare in the 500 years. You've had the option to. Um, and so I, maybe it is that we've, you know, we've just gone through act three now of, of a song of ice and fire or game of Thrones, whatever. And we're entering that end game. But even if we are, and even if this is still a traditionally structured story, which I, I still stand by the fact that it is, uh, We've got to get some other pretty significant complications as part of our rising action uh, before we reach the, the moment of climax. So, uh, and and I, I certainly am sad that that moment of climax will no longer involve the just frighteningly handsome and handsomely frightening uh, Ramsey Snow. <laughs> mm. Yes. Oh man, are we ready to tackle that subject? Yeah, I think we can jump my, on. The subject, his death, or my really uncomfortable attraction to that actor? No, are we, even as heterosexual males, att- attracted to Ramsey Snow? That's the subject I want to talk about. Okay, but, yeah. <laughs> so go right ahead. <laughs> no, well, okay, so as far as Ra- uh, Ramsey and Sansa ending his storyline and, and the smirk and everything like that and the satisfying moments, like, yes, we, we got something to actually, like, chew on this season and not just, like, cry about, and that, and that was very nice. Um, you know, and I, I wonder, all right, so we've, we, we've passed our, our major action points and now we're, we're leading back up again and we get a little tidbit of happiness. Does that mean we have no more happiness till maybe like the final moments or is this a a new direction of Thrones where we have a a smattering of little nice moments uh, and then the, the horribly awful deaths in between? Uh, And I'm not sure what, where we are with that. However, if a little Sansa side point, um, I, what I want to see with Sansa is we've got someone who's been played and used for f- six seasons now, and and we get to see her finally starting to fight back. What and we had one of our best uh, quips and, and turns of of how the story is structured is you think Littlefinger's about to manipulate her again, and she pushes him away with that's a nice little fancy pic- pretty picture you got, uh, and she just. 180s him immediately and I, I i do think that's our direction of our story that we've got sansa playing little finger and I, and i hope they continue to do that does that make sansa the first person to ever effectively play little finger unless varies did at some point um yeah i i think so and i think the thing is is that in general peter baelish tends to to play to people's emotions. Like he tries to find emotional reasons why they should trust him because he's all like, how did he get Ned? He's like, well, I can help you and and make sure that you're going to be able to get back to your children. You know, I, I care about your wife too. So you can trust that I want to make sure that she's as safe as possible. And then, you know, he just used that as an excuse to, to pry everything open and, and get, get to Ned. It's funny that, Basically, he finally has a real, genuine emotional moment with someone, and she's like, "Oh, that's great. 
fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Littlefinger. So, okay. So on your, your various comment, um, they, I don't like, yes, they, they, they battle a little bit, but they're, they're not playing the same game. They're like, it's two incredibly different philosophies, maybe clashing, but they're not, they're not necessarily playing each other. Um, now in the, in the book we get Varys, uh, you know, ends up killing the Grand Maester and, and Kevin Lannister, uh, and he kind of mentions that he's embracing this idea of chaos a little more. So we see book Varys, like kind of maybe starting to play the little finger game more, but show Varys is very much detached as ever, uh, as he's always been and just kind of overseeing in the background, doing his hands together. Um, and, uh, so yeah, do we, do we see more of a conflict between Varys and Littlefinger is the question, uh, more so than we've seen so far. Well, I mean, I think that the difference between those two characters is their motivations where, you know, Littlefinger is clearly out for himself. And I think the more we see of Varys, at least certainly in, in the series, he's not. He actually does seem to be acting in what, at least in his mind, is the best interest of Westeros. Um, and, and that's chaotic, and that's often underhanded, but he's not trying to position himself in power. He's trying to position Danny in power, so it seems, or possibly the rest of his mermaid kin, if you believe <laughs> that theory. Uh, but Littlefinger just wants it for himself, and he's willing to watch the world burn to do it. And I don't think that Varys has that hunger for personal power. So I do think we're we're being led to, at some point, another scene with the two of them, at least, and, and where we're going to see how they've moved in different places. Mm-hmm. Do you think their interests will ever align? Do you think Varys will ever try to push Littlefinger into power to to do each other's will together, knowing that there are these two like behind the scenes catastrophic forces? Will they ever team up, or will they be diametrically opposed forever? That would be like the world's most diabolical Voltron. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't see them on the same side at this point. I think we've we've had our moments of the two of them in collaboration early in the series where they seemed like they were at least affiliated at times. Um, I don't think we're going to see. I, I don't know that there's much to be done with them working together. I think the much more interesting thing is going to be to see the two of them manipulating other people to fight each other. Which is the only reason to watch Game of Thrones, let's be honest. Yeah. Alright, I'm going to do a quick rundown of, of the rest of our predicted deaths. Uh, Perfect. What we were and weren't um, accurate on. So, things we missed. Uh, Ollie, we said he wasn't going to die. We were totally, and I am absolutely fine being wrong. Like, God, Ollie, was that a death? Ollie's death is incredibly, incredibly satisfying. And I think one of the best things is that John is still very much doing his duty in that moment. And he doesn't totally, totally buy into doing it until the very last minute. And then I like that he's got some personal satisfaction of like, you're the motherfuckers who killed me. And I'm going to do this as my last official order of business, and then I'm out. Like, fuck off. I'm going to drop the mic. 
I, what does it say about us? Excuse me. What does it say about us that we are uh, actively cheering on the death of this child? <laughs> no, no. What does it say about us that we are actively cheering on the death of a second child in the same series? <laughs> yes. I, I think the show is Littlefinger and we're all Sansa. And <laughs> <laughs> just pushing us how to feel things exactly how they wanted us to do it this whole time. And, and we all become worse people at the end of it. Uh, all right. So what else do we have? Uh, we all thought Jorah was going to die. We were wrong, but it really wouldn't have made a difference. He, he was not in this season, really. He got sent on a road trip and then yeah. he got on another road trip. Yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty much all that can happen in Essos because the fuck else are you going to do? Stay well, somewhere? Be well, peaceful? No. Um, who else? Uh, I called Lancel being dead because my whole point was who would care. <laughs> I'm set. Lancel got a lovely bit of re- of redeeming in his death. I mean, the way he pulled himself down that hallway. He, I mean, he knew he was dead, but he's he's literally trying to save the lives of hundreds of people. Um, I actually thought it was a really a really powerful moment for that character. It's definitely the culmination of what started as a very, very, very slow burn for him, and and yeah, instead it's become something actually impressive. Let us never forget that uh, Lancel and Cerny fucked. <laughs> <laughs> they, she pulls him in when she gets bored because Jamie's gone. Poor Lancel. I mean, uh, I just, I have no point in that. I just want to remember that uh, that was the whole point of Lancel's character to be some some weird sexual uh comparison to jamie for cersei it's super weird uh what else do we have tom you thought brienne was gonna die because she didn't really have any purpose left and she still kind of didn't this this no there's still not really a purpose there other than a lovely two scenes with jamie yeah but uh yeah i'm hoping we're gonna find some some larger point for her in season seven because she's still so cool i also wonder if they didn't have her as much to film last season because she's off making Star Wars movies or something. Um, oh, that I don't know. I, I don't know what what the, the shooting schedule's like. Um, let's see what else. Uh, I partially called Dorn. I said that shit was gonna burn to the ground. I didn't realize we were gonna see the death of, you know, yeah, Dorn Jesus. and all of House Martell and everything being left to the Sand Snakes. So I'll give myself like a quarter credit, but then it's fine because I totally missed this one. I said no Stark children were going to die, and oops, my bad. Zig, man, you got to zig and zag. I truly didn't think we'd see Rick on this season, but, <laughs> you know, that's that's me being a, a show Sansa right now, just emotionally manipulated <laughs> throughout, so yeah. All right, so that's our that's our uh, predictions for deaths. Uh, Tom, you want to give us the official body count for for season seven or season six? Okay, yes. so I went through uh, the list of everybody who died, and I, I I took a couple of names out on the grounds that I didn't care. Um, like I didn't really care about Walter Frey's kids dying because I didn't really feel like we ever knew them. Um, but but going through it with characters that I thought we had any sort of connection to. Uh, 31, 31 bodies in, uh, in season six. And, and, and I, and I've created what I've referred to as the death grid. Uh, 
<laughs> uh, which is is I, I've broken these 31 bodies down into like nine categories, and I'm gonna kind of hit each category and just give us a moment to reflect on the people who died in that category. If you've got particular feelings about any of them, or or one that leaps out in your in your mind as someone you wanna you wanna pour one out for, uh, this is where we can do it. And I'm gonna try to hit them in order from least give a fuck to most give a fuck so uh doug you've already taken us to least give a fuck which is dorn uh our our body count in dorn we lost three we lost tristane we lost doran and we lost ario hota who uh is someone that book readers are quite fond of and someone that show readers uh show watchers are going who the hell was ario hota big dude with an axe for all of those who are wondering so any uh any remaining thoughts on the deaths in Dorne? I would just say I think it's a shame that they cast someone so perfect for Doran and then he didn't get to do anything. I think that's the only real thoughts I have on Dorne. Couldn't we have had Ariohota take out one Sand Snake? It, uh, they all blend together for me. I don't know the difference between any of them. Take one down, give him at least some value, make that not seem like a total shitstorm of a storyline and you know at least give us a little bit of something to take away there but you know rest in peace ario <laughs> uh so my next category uh, again one that that doug has led us to and it's it's amazing to think of these as uh, people are low on the give a fuck spectrum uh but it, i i go to the wall for sir alistair thorne and the aforementioned ollie uh mm. I think, again, we get one such a satisfying death with Ollie, but I think what struck me more is Alistair Thorne was Alistair Thorne to the last goddamn minute of his life Yep, and had to respect him for it. Um, Alistair Thorne is kind of our, our only multi-season, longer-than-three-season bad guy. I mean, do we have a, a bad guy who's last longer than that? I, 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 I mean, I guess Cersei, but... Um, and I guess we have the, you know, the moral gray area where everyone's a bad guy if we want to think about that. But, but Alistair is our, is our North bad guy throughout up until his final dying moments. And, you know, so great job to you for lasting that long and being that bad. So, uh, and the fireworks are going again. Yes. So, uh, the next one I had is, is, is hopping over to Bravos. With uh, Lady Crane, the actress, who I found myself uh, remarkably fond of in the short time that we knew her. And maybe it's the theater thing in me, but I, I really enjoyed that that performer. Um, and I really enjoyed the work, and I, I liked what it brought out of Arya. Uh, and also, on the flip side of that, The Waif. I, written for The Waif. Yeah, well, The Waif... I. I is there anyone out there who liked her being around for that long? I get some, you know, give her a two to three episode storyline. That was like two seasons of, of her hitting Arya with a stick over and over again. And it's just, it's amazing that they could not develop that character anymore than, than beyond that. So we, I I felt no ounce of emotion towards her at, at any moment in the show. I, uh, I did find it slightly funny and a little, it took me out of the scene when she was chasing after Arya and she was like full evil T-1000. Yeah. 
<laughs> but like little girl T-1000. Yes. <laughs> yes. So Terminator 3 is a... <laughs> oh, let's Sorry, I, I won't again. speak of it. I won't speak of it. Thank you. There's really no Terminator movie existed after the second. Yes. And everything else is just a, a bastardization. Um, my next category was simply what I referred to as other, because <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't fit anywhere. Um, but this is Balin Greyjoy. And uh, our one episode wonder... Uh, Brother Ray, Ian McShane, who we talked about in the first podcast as to who the hell is Ian McShane playing. And then we found out he's playing someone who's not in the books, who's only going to do one episode. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, probably the most memorable one episode appearance uh, on this entire series. I love the shit out of his work. And that character was really compelling to me. I am... So thankful that they cast him in a role where he's not just some scruffy nihilist. Like he was like a happy person with beliefs and, and you, you trusted him instantly. And I was like, HBO finally given him like a little bit of a, a range for him to, to, to work on. I, I really like that a lot. That was a great one show, uh, one episode moment. And the fact that, you know, you didn't know that he was going to die in that episode was like truly heartbreaking. So as far as a, a one episode storyline, I thought they, they nailed him. That, that was really great. Um, and what I will say for Balon is that I think he, I think he was our last remaining of the original vires of the throne of our game of thrones. So is, I mean, I think everyone else has died at this point. So some congratulations to him for kind of, he kind of won the Game of Thrones in, in some ways. <laughs> he, he was the last king standing from the War of Five Kings. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Good job, Balon. I mean, <laughs> you looked like you were not doing well, but, uh, you know, more power to you. Uh, yeah, uh I don't have a whole lot to say on that. I think we hit all the notes, but uh, congratulations to our other group. <laughs> the, the others. <laughs> all right, well, the fireworks are back, and they're really loud. Uh, my, my next, our next stop on our map, I, 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 could have, I guess I could have drawn a map, but it's an audio podcast, and no one would have seen it, so that would have been a waste of my time. <laughs> uh, is we, we hop over to the Twins, uh, and related areas, uh, the death of Walder Frey, well-deserved, long time coming, uh, peace out, Mr. Filch, and uh, also the death of the Blackfish. So what I will say about Walder Frey is they they stole a little from the book, and I, and I love what they did. It are, besides R plus L equals J, I think one of the biggest, best show theories or conspiracy theories is that Wyman Manderley ground up the Frey kids into a pie. And doesn't explicitly say it in the books, but we have the clues there. Well, in, in this one kind of did a little combination storyline and we got to actually experience the, the eating of the kids. And, and so that was great. I'm really happy they, they threw that into there to the book readers. So I, I was very pleased with that. I also like, you know, Arya's had a long list of people that she's been reciting the names of for like four seasons now. She's gotten to get two of them in the last two seasons. So that's nice because there's not a lot of them left. So that's two down for Arya. Who who is left on her list right now? Cersei? Cersei. Um the Mountain, the Hound. Although the Hound fell off the list eventually, I believe. Uh I'd, I'd be surprised if if she 
kills the hound or even sees him again. I don't think she's going to see him again. I don't know. I feel like they're going to have to run into each other at some point. And I feel like she has to kill him. Oh, that would really? be real oh. sad. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think this is a happy ending for Arya. Probably not. She has, she has gone just full, I will do whatever it takes to accomplish my goals. Yeah. She is a murderer. She's a ruthless, <laughs> cold-blooded murderer. Assassin. Yes. Yeah. And the funny thing, too, is, like, assassins in general get, like, paid to do things. They're very impartial about what's happening. No. Arya is murdering sons of bitches because she fucking wants to. Yeah. Yeah, there's, like, this this cold, quiet calculation in her that is just, like, so terrifying at this point. Like, we're talking about, you know, Daenerys maybe becoming our villain. Does Arya become our villain? I think it's not outside the realm of possibility, but I don't think a, a big one. I don't think we see Arya as a villain so much as we see her almost as a tragic figure. Uh, a character who gets so consumed by, by vengeance that it eventually eats away at her entire soul and almost destroys her. And, and that's not to say that I think she, she ultimately dies, but I don't know that that we, are, as people with an emotional bond to that character from, from childhood, uh, are going to like where we see her at the end of the story. Yes, I I would agree with that. But, yeah, I don't kill the hound, Arya. Give, you know... <laughs> I, at least give us a Klagang bowl, even if it's just the two of them in some dark meadow somewhere with no one watching. I just want to see a little bit of clash there. Um, our next stop on our tour uh, takes us to Winterfell, where we we lost seven Jesus. characters. Uh, not all at once. These, these died over a period of, of pretty much the entire season. Um, the most significant, of course, being Ramsay, our, our snarling, mustache-twirling villain of villains. Uh, but also uh, Walda Frey, his uh, uh, stepmother, uh, his dad, Roose Bolton, uh, Asha, the wildling. <laughs> Welcome back for one episode. Of Enjoy course. Northern Ireland. Yeah, Rick and Stark. Uh, who we've covered, and yes, Doug does need to learn how to zig. Uh, Rickon's <laughs> beloved shaggy dog. And Oof. perhaps the the biggest hole in our character lineup, 1-1 uh, the Giant. Mm. Got that damn door open. I always loved, too, that... So everyone who is south of the wall basically believes that giants don't exist and they're just fairy tales. They have now seen one. He was running around, picking them up, and throwing them at each other, and everyone seemed not to be shitting their fucking pants during the course of that, which always sort of amazed me that the Bolton soldiers were were keeping it together uh, while they watched an actual myth uh, attack them. Yeah, I, I have a little – I mean – Obviously, all right, it's a show about dragons with boobs. You know, the, we need to keep our, like, realism out of it. But here we have all this trouble believing White Walkers exist, but you've got dr- dragon, you know, you've got uh, giants running around. You've got the, you know, the, the dragons we know exist. We have skeletons all over the place with these dragons. Like, what, what is keeping us from believing that there are these White Walkers? Like, okay, let's just trust the person that, that's saying it. That, that's just me nitpicking, though. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've made jokes about my my weird fixation with Ramsey, but just now that now that he's gone, how do you guys respond to the death? Are we are we glad to be done with him? Did he stick around too long? Was did he serve the right purpose? Uh, 
did you want more of him? I, I think they were basically the breaking point with, with Ramsey. Last season, he had a ton of screen time with, with Sansa and Theon, and I think that with that, he got so far into the territory of kind of what we talked about the first one, a villain without really any nuance. I mean, the only thing that's kind of humanizing about him to a certain extent is he is a bastard, and while he is legitimized, his relationship with his father is very tenuous. Um, and we saw that come to a head in a way that was slightly strange, like, hey, Roos, your son's a psychopath, and he was just informed that you now have a spare heir. Maybe don't let him or his friends come in with a bunch of knives when you're just hanging out by yourself. Just just a thought for a dude who's supposed to be very smart. Yeah. Uh, Ram- Ramsey confuses me. It's like you're willing to kill your father, the the king in the castle, in front of many people. But, like, so you're dumb enough to do that, but then you're smart enough to, like, have this amazing, like, military technique that he, like, runs in the Battle of the Bastards. Uh, he's this, He was just a, a bunch of, like, hypocriticals, like, uh, all wrapped up in one. I could have wrapped my head around him. Like, I, I realized he's he took over the Joffrey nihilistic... Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna fucking kill everything around me, kind of villain, a little <laughs> Game of Thrones version of mustache twirling. But uh, he, I, I, I don't know. I, all of, a lot of our other bad guys, we can like identify either something we like about them or something in ourselves, you know. But Ramsey's just so out of touch. I, I, I couldn't I I couldn't figure out if I felt anything for Ramsey or if I even cheered his death. I think it was just time. That's fair. Uh, if we go north of the wall, we lost, we lost four, uh, Leaf, our, one of our children of the forest, and Summer, uh, and Raven, and of course, Hodor. Uh, Hodor. One of the most surprising revelations, uh, on the series, and, and truly one of the maybe the saddest moment for me of the series. It was, it was the death that it wasn't a shock death to me in the way that a Ned Stark death was or a red wedding death was. It was just a, a, a pervasive sadness of seeing what this character's journey really had been um, and how he went out. Yes, that was that. I mean, as good as episode nine and ten were, and I, I'm not going to say the whole hold hold the door episode was better than episodes nine and ten, but that moment is 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 a top five, top three, if not the best moment in the show. Like just how it was built from season one on, we knew he knew exactly what was happening, and it was gonna had to come right at that exact moment. That was as beautiful writing as I think there's been on the show, and uh, especially for our favorite character. If there's anyone who has just is all good in the world is Hodor. I don't know if there's another character that it has no negative qualities to him. So yeah, that was super sad for me. Yeah. It's, I think that's a beautifully written and put together scene. And I think not only because it colors so much of what we know about Hodor, like especially his, his absolute nervousness anytime that there's real danger. Um, because, 
he is probably reliving that moment that he's already experienced. He experiences his own death as like a 10-year-old. Um, but I think, too, Bran's reaction in the moment as it's happening and his own realization about his role in destroying Hodor's life. I mean, he did this to someone who has been nothing but absolutely devoted to him. And and his realization without even speaking words, I thought I thought really played and and just spoke volumes about the tragedy that was unfolding. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys give a shit about Children of the Forest? I don't think nope. I do. Yeah. Nope. Nah. Don't really don't really give a shit about the Direwolf either, which makes me feel bad. Uh, yeah. We're down to one. Two. Uh, well, yeah, but one of them is, is alive. She's MIA. <laughs> uh, and our, our we have two categories left, but I'm gonna I'm gonna combine them into one because they all take place in the same city. Uh, and they all died in the same episode, but this is our King's Landing body count from the finale. Um, and so just to hit that list, uh, Grandmeister Picel, Grandmaster Picel, uh, Kevin Lannister, Marjorie Terrell, Lancel Lannister, Mace Terrell, the High Sparrow, Loras Terrell, and King Tommen. I believe this is the most major characters to ever die in a single episode of Game of Thrones. I mean, Red Wedding can be the only thing that comes close. And that's really two people. Three. If you count the... The the wife, the pregnant wife. Yeah, can you remember her name? (laughs) Nope. No. That she doesn't count. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, so, I mean, as far as, like, probably showtime, I mean, maybe not importance, but I'd say Marjorie has had as much showtime as, as Catelyn. So in some ways, you know, I mean, Callan and Rob, that they were they were two of our probably eight main characters on the show at that point. So that that was huge. Do you think? Would you call any of the the recent King's Landing deaths as big as as the Robert Catelyn? I don't think we're as emotionally invested in anyone who died. Yeah, that we were with with Rob and Catelyn. Um, I will say from a shocking standpoint, I, I guess I'm not totally surprised a lot of those people died, but the way in which Toman died did not see coming. Literally made me go, "Oh shit!" Just, and it made total sense. It was it was really set up well from a character perspective, and I don't remember where I saw this, but someone just saying that's the first action he ever takes for himself the entire series oh, at God. All, yeah at all other times he's either being manipulated by his mother uh or by by marjorie even if that's a little gentler um and and that's his first real choice it's not just out of despair it's like everything i cared about was taken from me and so i'm going to take the one thing away from from my mother who that she still cares about is that uh is that the writers telling us to to jump out the window now? Like, <laughs> if you think this is gonna get better, don't just, just you see the wildfire, just go out the window. Like, I, I yeah, <laughs> well, that was there, so sad. There, there's one other possible uh, 
repercussion of the death of all of the Tyrells. And I, I read this somewhere last week. Um, if you flash back a couple of seasons ago, remember the Iron Bank? Yeah. yeah. And, and all of the deaths that the Lannisters and King's Landing owe to the Iron Bank. And the way they were getting out of that debt is the Tyrells were covering them. Well, that's a problem. And so now, because the Lannisters don't actually have any money right now. Right. Um, so the, the financial support for the Seven Kingdoms just <laughs> went away. And winter is here. So I, I you know, everybody goes starve. So, so here we go with another season of, of Westerosi geopolitics and uh, uh, economics, I guess. Yeah. Uh, see what happens when the food and money all runs out, and then uh, Mark Gaddis of Sherlock, Sherlock comes calling for his repayment. <laughs> uh, Kevin, you Kevin, you asked a, a sort of a question in there about do any of these deaths in King's Landing resonate on the level of of say a Catelyn Stark or a Rob Stark and something that, that Doug and I were chatting about uh, earlier today while we were waiting for you to show up um, was uh, what was the most significant death of season six? Um, so uh, Doug, why don't you start? Who do you think was the most significant death in season six? And then go to Kevin. Uh, yeah. And we, we touched very briefly on it, but I, I think you can argue that that it might be Tommen because that just I mean I think it's gonna unhinge Cersei at that point. She I mean she she won to a certain extent she got she accomplished what she wanted to but I think in very typical Cersei fashion, a little short sighted uh, like Tom was just pointing out. They now don't have anyone to pay off the the Iron Bank. Um, she's got no allies left. Uh, you know, the Boltons are gone. The phrase gone. Dorne is going to be coming for, for her. Um, she's pissed off anyone who is connected to the house Tyrell who's still around. Um, oh, and guess what? Danny's on her way. Uh, and I think now she's just absolutely, she's got all this power and she's got nothing to anchor her. Yeah, I agree with you. Tommen is probably our our most uh, what was the important death is a uh, most resonant death yes uh, a standing king in Westeros uh, dying is going to be probably our most resonant death I'm going to say of characters that we we as an audience liked and were good we'll, we'll put good in quotation marks uh, I'm going to say Marjorie Tyrell is as could be as important. I mean, that's someone who was actively feeding the poor and uh, someone who, but also gets to play the Game of Thrones at the same time. So she's good, but is also like a a, a player. And uh, and so it was really sad to see someone who could, was working the game and and seemingly like had plans like she gave the rose she gave the the rose drawing to the queen of thorns to let her know that she had something up and she didn't really get to carry out much of a plan at, at all that she just got kind of the, the rug pulled out from under her and uh that was it was quite a, a heartless quick swift uh, emotionless way for her to go for a character that we like quite a bit 
Yeah, I, t- I actually have to agree with you, Kevin. That To me, Marjorie is the, the most significant death of the season in the sense of, yes, we've spent the most time with her, but also of everybody that we've met in this series, she might be the best player of the Game of Thrones. Um, and even in her final moments, she knew what was happening. She mm-hmm. saw the problem and she just couldn't get out because the faith militant, as militant faith people sometimes are, were idiots. Um, so uh, the fact that that she was seeing, you know, she saw the whole board. Mm-hmm. She knew exactly what was going on. And she, no matter where she was, you know, she successfully played Renly. And she successfully played Joffrey. And she successfully played Tommen. Um, and I, I think she thought she was successfully playing the Sparrow, and, and in the end, that one I guess didn't work out. But I think Marjorie is the is the biggest hole that will need to be filled somehow. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna uh, one more question before we move on from the King's Landing deaths, uh, and you can we can dive into this as much as we want. I've read a few articles about it now, but regarding the death of Loras Tyrell. Tom, this is a question for you. How do you think Game of Thrones handles their gay characters? Oh, boy. Um, and we're starting a new podcast that's going to run for <laughs> its own hour. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've read the same pieces, and I'm sensitive to the issues, obviously. I, But I'm, I'm also a storyteller, and... I don't see the story to be told with the featuring of Loras Terrell still alive. Um, I don't, I didn't feel like killing the Knight of Flowers was uh, an insult to me as a gay man. Uh, I have, I frankly actually enjoyed the way that the series has at times framed queer sexuality, um, particularly through the character of Yara. This season, which, um, you know, if I'm flashing to my favorite moments of the season, it's in Battle of the Bastards, but it's not the Battle of the Bastards. It's the scene between Danny and Yara. So good. Absolutely. <laughs> which was just fantastic. And uh, the way Yara has been very openly framed in season six as a, an overt lesbian, uh, I find really interesting. Uh, now, television has traditionally been a little bit more comfortable portraying lesbian sexuality than gay male sexuality. Um, something I pointed out to Doug that I'm sure he really didn't care to know, but I noticed these things uh, about a week ago, is that Loris Tyrell, who was a very sexually active character on this series, never had a nude scene, which is just interesting i guess uh i i don't find big problems in the killing of loris because i don't know what it accomplishes to keep him alive um and perhaps if he had been a more central character but he never was he was always there as a character to be reflecting things onto people we were more connected to. He was there to tell us more about Renly. He's really been there to tell us more about Marjorie. So uh, 
at the risk of betraying the tribe, I haven't had a huge problem with that. I I uh, definitely agree with you. I mean, I don't think Game of Thrones is interested in telling us how to feel about certain types of people. I don't think that's on their agenda. I think they're they are a show trying to tell a story, and there are a wide variety of characters in it. The only uh, you know sort of question mark that's raised for me is how the show converts Loris the book character into. Uh, Loris the TV character. Uh, Loris the book character is the winner of the Westeros jousting tournament. He's a member of the King's Guard. He almost like single-handedly takes Dragonstone uh, on a, a suicide mission, and he ends up winning this suicide mission. But none of that—that's that's not in the show. And I realize that it's it gets extraneous, but uh, I, we just have a very Loris is a strong character, but he is weak in the show, and he is submissive, and he is uh, overcome by the powers that be. And I, I, that was really sad for me to see. I wish we could have seen more from Loris, but uh, I, I realized story-wise, they, the Tyrells have to go, and, and that's what had to happen. All right, um, I think that's all of our our big main deaths, correct, Tom? That's all of them. That's all thirty-one. All right. Then let's uh, let's go quickly through our other predictions um, from from earlier. The first two really have to do with John, and it was both how long will John be dead, and how will he be brought back. Uh, both of you uh, believed that Melisandre was going to be the way in which John was brought back. Congratulations, pats on the back for both of you. Uh, very divergent though in terms of how long we thought he was going to be gone. Kevin, you thought we were going to be sans uh, Mr. Snow for an entire season. And Tom was a little closer. He thought we were going to go less than than three episodes uh, without John. Um, I guess now would be a, a good point in saying, like, what do we feel about just sort of the, the resurrection of John in general and how it was handled? I thought it was heavy-handed but necessary. I, I didn't want them to bullshit around like is he back is he not back they just jump right back into it and i was like good good let the, we we need to move this story along good let's do this yeah cut to the chase um i still wonder if we're gonna see any sort of uh residual problems from him having been brought back the way beric dondarian talks about with the number of times he's been resurrected uh but i like that they just said nope he's back he's alive and let's get on with the story I do think it's an interesting point you bring up, Tom, because I think we, we have, to a certain extent, seen some of that. I know that a lot of people have, have said they didn't really see any kind of change in John from being brought back, but but to me, it really kind of came to a head during Battle of the Bastards, where he just seems, for a lot of the time leading up to that, just so... I guess he he is reserved, like he's ready for whatever is going to happen, and he doesn't have really hope at that point. He's just moving along with the flow, and I think especially too when Rickon gets killed and he just charges, and that's against all of the plans they came up with. Um, it almost doesn't even feel like that's that's a moment of he lost his head. It felt like a moment of I'm done, like. I already got killed once. There's nothing after here. I would rather just get back to it. And I think that it's interesting because I think in the middle of the battle, there's a point where that stops being the case. 
Um, and I think there's that whole, like, it looks like John is suffocating and then he finally gets up and about and then he can see the, the Knights of the Vale show up. And I think like that's, to me, I, I think a lot of this season for John has been learning how to be alive again. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I, I think that is a great way to uh, focus this season, for sure. Very Buffy the Vampire Slayer season. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so sticking around in the north, we talked a little bit about Stark reunions and who was going to run into each other. Um, I took the very easy way out and said that, that Sansa and John were going to meet up because where the hell else did, did Sansa have to go? Um, Tom did say that he thought Sansa might meet up with Rickon and or Bran. He was kind of, kind of correct. So you're like as close as possible with not being right, I guess, is the, the situation on that one. Um, and then meet up. <laughs> they, could have waved, they could have waved at each other. Um, and you had also said that uh, you thought that John and Bran might get a chance to, to reunite, and they were closer than they have been. Um, there's a lot of people who actually said the uh, the heart tree that that uh, Bran uh, uses uh, towards the end of the the season is the same one that John took his vows of the Night Watch on. They did some comparison, and it's the same tree. Oh so, yeah. That means he's got to be less than like half a day's ride from the wall. Well, the thing that I think is really cool is that at this moment, all of the living Stark children are within a relatively close proximity to each other. They are all in the north now. You know, we've got John and Sansa at Winterfell. We have Bran north of the wall, but not far north of the wall. Hmm. And we've got uh, and we've got uh, 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 Arya is at the twins. Yeah. So they're they're close, and I, we gotta be getting the reunion of these of these kids soon. And Rickon's in the crypt. Yay! <laughs> Sad. Sad. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see what else we got. Um, we had guessed that Ian McShane was going to be Septon Marbold, um, and while he wasn't technically that character, he was basically that character. He gave us the reintroduction to Sandor in a, as we said, great one-off performance. Um, we talked a little bit about Euron and I had basically asked the question like, so he's going to win the King's moot and then what's he going to do? And I was like, does he just immediately leave for Marine? Sort of, but yeah, you know, not immediately. <laughs> got to build, he's got to build a lot of boats first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That had been his hope. Didn't work out so well. Um, can I, can I do a new Euron prediction? Yes. Um, Euron by necessity as there is no one else has to ally with Cersei, and it probably happens through a marriage. Uh, there is no one else. Every other family is actively trying to bring down King's Landing, uh, and it's the fact that the Iron Islands don't have a problem with King's Landing right now, and they have some power that could be offered to Cersei. And there's, I, I, I don't see any other way for it to play out for me. Are you predicting Euron and Cersei get married? Yes, yes. Bold prediction, my friend. Bold prediction. I like it. Um, I don't think you're right, but I love the I love the chutzpah of it. Thank you. Thank I you. mean, but that that's I mean, how disappointing was Euron this season? He's the much more. I mean, he's he's a little bit super fantasy type character in Game of Thrones, and he sticks out a little bit because of that. But man, he just seemed really disappointing to me in all the scenes that he actually was in. I will say that 
physically, they cast him perfect. He looks like a Greyjoy, and he he looks like Theon's mm-hmm. older brother, like as I would imagine him in my head. Um, but yes, the Kingsman was fine. That I mean, whatever. They didn't have the the horn. Uh, that was a little disappointing. Uh, but you know, the Kingsmooth did what it needed to do. It was just very, I'm a, I'm not a good person and I'm doing mean things and my episode is done. You know, I, I, maybe there's more, but yeah, yeah, I think they were introducing him to set him up for next season. Yeah. All right. So then we get, uh, Wait, we talk- we, are we going to get a naval battle next year? Like oh. a ship, ship? Oh. Joy versus Greyjoy, fleet versus fleet version of a game ball? I mean, it's it's the Greyjoy ball. Oh my god, wait. Is Theon gonna kill Euron? Is Theon gonna, like, find his metaphorical yeah. balls? I, I hope so. Yes, that would be great. I would love that. Um, alright. So, we'll skip ahead real quick. Uh, so we had what happens to Davos now that Stannis is gone. Um... Kevin, you had thought that Davos was going to find some way to destroy the Night's Watch, maybe by finding, like, the horn and bringing down the wall, um, I think was what your point was. Um, and Tom, you thought he was going to become Lord Commander. Big wrong on both sides, but yeah, really I, I appreciate your guys' bold choices. <laughs> Instead, he, just kinda, he was just kind of hanging out with John and basically doing for John what he did for Stannis. Yeah, but at least, <laughs> at least he knows that John isn't going to burn anybody that he likes. I honestly didn't know that he didn't know Shireen died. <laughs> like, I was like, what, what are you confused about right now? We all know what happened. Oh, like, oh you weren't there. Oh, <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. Uh, I do love that Davos got uh, a couple of nice big uh, uh, scenes this year. Um, one, when it was first, like, you know, we need to, to get John back up and, and running with the land of the living. But two, I think when, when they're trying to rally support for the, the Starks, um, you know, he really proves his, his kind of best assets. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, what else we got? Uh, Arya, we just figured she was going to learn what she couldn't leave and she wasn't going to necessarily take on any of the tenants of the house of the undying. We were correct. Kevin and I thought we were for sure getting the Clegane Bowl this year, and we for sure did not. And will not. No. Yeah, unfortunately. And see, now I think you will. But again, I don't think it's going to have any stakes at this point. I think it's just going to end up being sort of the personal vendetta, and maybe that's that's the, the way this should be, that there's not going to be anything really riding on it. It's just going to be the mountain... And the Hound. This is going to be two brothers who hate each other. It's not going to be like them vying for their households. Gregor isn't Gregor anymore. He can't speak. He doesn't. I don't, does he hold land anymore? I, I don't even. I don't think he does. He's the King's Guard, so I don't think he can technically. He's also right. dead. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's no there's no stakes in that battle except just good old fashioned I hate you brother so we'll see if that can if they can spice that up a little bit uh, on the subject of Gregor Clegane aka Robert Strong um, Kevin had really posited a theory but I'm gonna throw it out as a prediction that Robert Strong's head was actually the head of Rob Stark um, we did see the helmet removed <laughs> 
We did see the helmet removed before, uh, before some fun that he got to have, but I do not think that that is uh, Richard Madden's head. And, but, but let me tell you something, Kevin. When I saw that helmet coming off, <laughs> I leaned forward and said, oh, my God, please let it be Rob Stark's head. Please let it be Rob Stark's head. I wanted your insane, fucked up, craziness theory to be true. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't. It was not. It was resoundingly not. Uh, I was reminded by an actor friend of ours that to just have Richard Madden's face appear for a moment would be so exponentially not worth the money <laughs> that uh, it, that they it's easily just written out of the show. So yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fine though. I had fun with it. Um, I do have a question though about that scene in particular with the with the Septa. Um. Maybe my read on on that scene is darker than some. Uh, <laughs> that was a dark scene. <laughs> oh. Um, I thought it was pretty apparent that the reason that uh that Cersei was leaving Gregor there was that Gregor in life had a certain penchant for stabbing things with a sword that he can't get rid of. Um, a lot of people just took it as a general torture scene. I took it as he was, he was going to, to make love until death. Yeah, that's, that's how I took that scene. Am I, am I the only one of us who got that vibe? Yeah, I, I'm just trying not to think about it, honestly. <laughs> but the, yeah, the fact that they, they didn't and couldn't show it means that yes, it went to the worst place imaginable. Yeah, I honestly didn't have that thought, but it makes perfect sense. And I'm glad they didn't make it clearer. Yes, yes. Thank you. Jeez. <laughs> I mean, the, the last thing this show needed to do was to, again, use use any sort of rape as a plot point. That's a good um, point. It, particularly in a season that had been so strong for its women. I don't think it needed to be that explicit, but I think it was probably left ambiguous enough that people who have that connection with Gregor's backstory, particularly from the books might be able to read it into it. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, three cheers for this season's treatment of, of women and sexual violence for sure. That was a nice little uh, turn for the show. So kind of going, uh, with the King's Landing, Clegane Bowl, uh, Gregor stuff, uh, Tom totally predicted that Cersei was going on a, gonna go on a vengeance rampage, and congratulations, Tom. You were right in a way that I'm sure you couldn't even have guessed. I really had no idea that was going to be the kind of vengeance rampage it was. I just knew you didn't want to piss off Cersei. And she yeah. was really pissed off. Yep. That that is our best prediction. I I think. How could we how could you predict a better prediction than that for this season? Uh, well, I was very wrong on my next one, which I thought that we might see the High Sparrow is actually Howlin' Reed, which is a book theory that's floated around for a while. If that's the case, Howlin' Reed is super dead. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little convoluted even for the books, as is every Howlin' Reed theory, because they there's just so much that could be but won't be with that character, unfortunately. Yes. So, yeah. So then we kind of come to the last prediction, and I think in a lot of ways this touches on on sort of the biggest thing we were wondering about throughout the whole season, and 
Tom, I actually hate to tell you, but you missed a couple of deaths by technically about 15 years. Um, but this season, we also saw the deaths of Gerald Hightower, Sir Arthur Dane, Lord of the Morning, um, and uh, Lyanna Stark, um, Ned's sister. And uh, that was, we were wondering when we were going to see the Tower of Joy scenes. Um, Tom, you thought we were going to have all of that by episode three or four, and you were sort of right, but you were also yep. very against the possibility that we were going to wait till the penultimate episode, and we waited beyond that. So mm-hmm. I was right in that we didn't wait until the penultimate episode. <laughs> yes. And, and, <laughs> and listen, let's but let's be real, right? If you are a book reader, or if you are a person who has spent some time in the dark recesses of the internet where the theories live, as soon as you saw the Tower of Joy, you knew what the result was. Yeah, I mean, yes. as soon as we went to the Tower of Joy, I was as certain as I could possibly be about Jon Snow's parentage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but I don't think that that was the experience that people who are more casual fans had. So I, I think that was something that worked very nicely for both sets of readers or, or viewers. Yeah, I'm actually, I hope that it played for people that, I mean, I'm sure they're not getting who John's father is so much from the flashbacks. And I guess that's just one last nugget that, uh, that showrunners are holding on to, but, um, but they're not because HBO released that like family tree thing two days later that confirms that Rhaegar is John's father. Yes. Uh, and I do wonder if we're going to see some kind of confirmation of that in show. I would imagine we're going to have, have to, but I don't know how we'll see that. I'm going to guess that, that Bran's not going to again warg, or uh, again use his, his green sight powers to go back to the Tower of Joy for a third time. So I'll be interested I, to see how that comes up in, in the story now. I realize it's difficult to play a story to casual Game of Thrones show watchers and people who've read 5,000 pages of, of material on the subject. Um, but I do wish there could have been just a little bit of something extra in their reveal there. Like, you know, I, I realize this is a too convoluted for the story, but like if Mira Reed, there's a theory that Mira Reed is a twin to Jon Snow and that she was born there as well. Shit like that. Just something other that could have given some to the book readers that have known this was coming for years now. And, but I, that's just my book reading wishful thinking. Well, there was one little Easter egg in there that I believe, Doug, you're the one who pointed out to me. Would you like to share that with the, with, with the masses? Yeah. So, there's a very little interesting point, and in the books, it's it's well established that Ned takes Dawn, which is the the Dane ancestral family sword, and he takes it back to um, their home in Dorne after after the war. Um, but with the second scene for for the Tower of Joy, it's shown that Ned has the sword with him that he picks it up from Arthur Dane, and he takes it with him into the tower. And when he finds his sister's sister, he puts it at the end of her bed. And the pommel of dawn is decorated with a a star, and the sword itself is bloody. Um, and the prophecy about Azor Ahai, which is for people who who are not familiar with it, 
um, Melisandre's god, the the red god. Um, the champion of of him is called the Zora High, and that's basically who she was saying Stannis was this whole time. Um, but the prophecy is that he'll be born under a a a bloody star, a red star. And in the book, they have this whole thing about uh, there's a big comet um, that that's very prevalent, which they don't really have in the TV show, but. Um, for the Tower of Joy scene, um, they've made sure to put that at the end of the bed, um, which I thought was a very fun little little tick to, to put there for people who are being attentive. That is true. I did not catch that. Thank you, Doug. <laughs> um, I'll say, though, I, I mean, Kevin, it sounds like you were a little disappointed with, with the whole scene in the flashback, but I, I was really impressed and I was really satisfied just the whole transition from the most emo baby ever uh, <laughs> that shot directly to to John and Winterfell. Oh, yeah. so good! It's I think that whole transition of of the Tower of Joy scene to the Winterfell scene is to me maybe the most satisfying moment, um, both as a book fan and as as a, a fan of the TV show. I mean that's. This is a theory that I've kicked around for the better part of a, a decade, and there are people who have been waiting 20 years to see that con- confirmation. And to me, I don't know what they could have done to make that better. Especially with a full reveal using the television medium. Like, they yeah. did a, a fade cut. You know, they didn't have to be like, and then so it was written, John was, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So that, that was very well handled, definitely, for sure. Um, I, I guess, all right, so we've gone through all our predictions now, and we were pretty much 50-50, and even the things that we called, normally we were a little off on them, and the things that we got wrong, a lot of times we were a little on on them, give or take a high sparrow prophecy. Um, but, so, let's talk about first what we didn't think worked for this season. Hmm. Uh, I thought this was one of the best seasons the show has ever had. Uh, so I, I don't actually have a lot of things that go on my things that didn't work. I mean, if, if I'm really nitpicking, just the 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 dramatic structure guy in me has a real problem with introducing Dorn in the first episode and then not going back to it until the 10th. But that's that's really nitpicky. Yeah, I feel like for me, most of the things that, that didn't work were were very small. Um, again, I thought Euron was a little little wasted and I didn't really love his characterization. I also think that just abandoning Dorne is strange, but at the same time, that plot was so bad last season, and the actors that they chose to keep around after after killing off Dorne didn't interest me at all. So while it was strange, I'm glad that that they did it in the end, I guess. Yes. I, I am very happy that the show listens to its audience. They it was obvious they tried hard to make Dorne good, but it, it wasn't. And then you have that great scene with the Queen of Thorns, where she's just like telling them all to shut up, left and right, and and that that was total shout out to the audience. Like, yes, thank you for doing this because the, they were terrible. So in 
like, yes, they mishandled it, but that was more of a last season problem handling of Dorn than a this season. I think they just were like, let's just get through this as quickly as possible. Um, but yes, Tom, I agree with you. I think this is one of our best seasons yet, especially because we're not relying on book source material. This is the show throwing the reins, caution up to the wind, seeing what's going to happen. And, and I thought they did a very good job. Um, as you know, when you when you have like a great like hold the door episode or episodes nine and ten, it's hard to look back and not think some were just peace moving episodes, and that's a little frustrating when when you when you have such a high bar set for every show. But uh, you know I, I can I can allow that to happen because the payoffs were huge this season. Well, then on the flip side, what did work? What were our personal highlights of of the season? You know, I already gave mine. It was Danny and Yara. Uh, I've joked a couple of times that really at that moment with the girl power, all I was waiting for was Beyonce to come riding in on a dragon. to come. <laughs> um, it, it was Danny and Yara. It was um, the massacre in the Sept and seeing what, uh, what Cersei turns into there. Um, those are probably my two high points. Kevin? My two high points are the – I'm going to highlight two people. Uh, one is our our score writer, uh, oh, the, the, yeah. the composer, Ramin Jawadi. I, I don't know how yeah. to pronounce it. Uh, um, Ramin Jawadi. Thank you, yes. Um, the, the piano score for that 10th episode, that first half hour, uh, makes every – I can – I've been listening to it a bunch, actually, and it takes me right back to, like, the exact feeling. And it, it is as evocative soundtrack music as I've heard in anything ever. Uh, and that was such a, a moving piece that was built on the silence of the characters and the power of the music. So that was – that was a really high point for me. And then I also want to point out the, the cinematographer for both episodes nine and 10 was the same. Uh, and there are just some, some composition shots, like the Tommen, uh, suicide is just, was perfect. I, I just loved how that was framed and, and set up and the pacing of it all. Um, the, the shot of John going through the battlefield went right when the battle first starts. And you've got like the combination of, of high production value, non special effect mixed with CGI in the background. And it was a $6 million shot for 30 seconds. Uh, like, I mean, money well spent because that was amazing. That, that was, that, that, that was, uh, because how many fantasy battle scenes have we had over the years that, you know, and that was as good as any, as I can remember, that was just a phenomenal scene with, with all the anticipation, the bar set impossibly high and it still exceeded it. So that was pretty cool. Um, I guess for me, the things I'm going to remember most when I think back on this season uh, is one going to be just to hold the door. I think that that's, I've never been as devastated uh, at one particular moment um, on a TV show. And then I think what's going to be the most satisfying thing to me is going to be uh, Leanna Mormont standing up and and uh, giving that same kind of speech uh, that Rob got. Instead, it's John, though. And it's funny because in a lot of ways, Rob got that support because his name was Stark. And it didn't matter what he had accomplished. And for John, it's the exact opposite. No one gives a shit what his name is. They're not calling him Stark. They're still calling him Snow. They're acknowledging where he came from. 
but he earned it. And there was a really great uh, moment someone pointed out from season one that John has a conversation with Benjen, his uncle Benjen at the wall, and John's expressing his frustration about everything. And, and Benjen tells him, you know, at the wall, you only get what you earn. And I think more than anyone throughout the entirety of the show, except maybe Cersei, she certainly earned it, but, but John's earned where he's at. And uh, I think that's incredibly satisfying in a way that it, it wasn't with Rob. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I agree. All right, then, guys, what are we looking forward to for next year? Uh, Cersei on the goddamn throne <laughs> with no one to challenge her. Except so, for Jamie. And yes, that's what yes. I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to, to Cersei and Jamie being at odds. I feel like for a lot of, of last season and, and the first half of this one, it was a little frustrating that a lot of Jamie's character work seemed to just get pushed aside a little bit. And it was back to, he was going to do anything to, to protect Cersei and, and all of that. And it was just nice that moment when she's getting crowned and Jamie's like, Oh shit. Oh shit. <laughs> yeah, that was nice. Um, anything else I'm looking forward to? Uh, yeah. J- Jamie Cersei tension is going to be huge. Uh, I'm looking forward to our, our new um, potential romances that we've got, you know, Danny and whoever she ends up. We know she is going to marry someone. She mentioned that. So I'm, I'm very excited to see that episode of The Bachelorette. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's fine. Um, I think I'm just excited to finally see Danny, but also Tyrion and Varys all in Westeros. I mean – They've been doing all of these things that seem to a certain certain content uh, or context kind of inconsequential. Like none of us give a shit about Marine. There's no one who lives there that that we care about. We have nothing tied up there. So she's finally there. Like six seasons it's taken her to leave to finally get to Westeros, and finally we're gonna gonna finally get some payoff. And yeah, that. And Go when ahead, she does. Are we going to see Tyrion and Jaime on opposite sides of armies? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, that'd be really sad. Yeah. Oh, I forgot one prediction that Kevin actually nailed that I meant to say about Marine. Kevin called it the final shot of this, this year was going to be Danny leaving Marine with her dragons. And you even said that she was going to leave Dario behind, and she absolutely did. That, yeah, I mean, they love ending with those Danny moments, and there was no moment that it could be except that, so that made sense. But, yeah, um, starting to go back to one point, uh, what, I, uh, what you guys were talking about, we've got two um, uh, areas that plot is happening, the north at the wall and King's Landing, and that's it. There's, there's, yeah. there's nothing else. Uh, so we're going to have all the action condensed and more importantly, characters condensed. So we're going to see so many cross scenes like that first season when we got to see that Cersei Robert scene that wasn't in the books. And, and so we're going to get these magical two person, uh, unions of these like dream dialogues that we've had in our heads, but we've never been able to carry out because they're finally fucking in the same place finally. (laughs) So, um, so that'll be good. I'm excited for that. Um, I guess that's a good question though. What's, What's going to happen in the North for next season? I mean, it, it feels like they still need to consolidate with 
any and everyone who who lives below the wall. So what's the conflict for the North? I can't. I mean, I imagine there's going to be some White Walker stuff to a certain degree, but but I feel like at Someone's some point bring it down the wall. I think that's the conflict. Oh it's, God. Yeah. That's a good point. I think you're probably right. Well, and I and I think Littlefinger is still potentially a source of conflict in the north. That's a good yes. point. Yes. All right, guys. I think that covers about everything. Uh, I think that wraps up season six of Game of Thrones. <sighs> yes. All right, so I'm going to go back and watch it now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, gentlemen, thank you. If anyone has any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we're on Twitter at RTR Podcast. You can reach out to us on Facebook. We're under Real Time Review. Uh, you can you can go uh, comment to us on RealTimeReview.com. So that's a lot of ways to get to us. Um, but until next time. 